Welcome. It's uh, Saturday, uh, January 25th, 2020. Hi, everyone. Hey, good morning. Hey, morning, folks. You know what tomorrow is? Sunday. Yeah, do you know what it is, though? It's the day that ends in Y. Okay, good. It's the 34th anniversary of the Chicago Bears winning the Super Bowl. Oh. How about that? January 26th, 1986. Wow. Yeah. Nothing makes you feel older than that. I know, man. But how many people right now immediately are thinking Super Bowl shuffle and doing that little Exactly. Dance? Yeah. And Fridge Perry, right? And Walter Payton, God rest his soul, and all those guys, man. Sweetness. You know, and what's so funny is because we so love the Bears in Chicago, we've cut them so much slack because there is no organization on the planet more committed to mediocrity than those guys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? At least there's those a commitment. Fi- those are fighting words. <laughs> Chicago Bears committed to mediocrity, you mm-hmm. know? I would almost say Northwestern basketball, but that's, you know. Oh, but wow. That, that's a cheap. No, I got a good buddy of mine. My buddy Rory is a big Northwestern basketball fan. So, so yeah, man, we were talking right before we started uh, about this, uh, the, the TV show that that's, like, seems like reruns as it's going, the, the Trump impeachment. Uh, Bump a rum. Yeah, I just, I, I'd love to get your takes on it, on what you guys think. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, Regardless of the outcome, it's a democratic process that we have to go through, that the American people has to see evidence. The presumption of innocence has to be, is an operative presumption in our in our constitutional republic that we live in, that the president is innocent of the charges against him until proven guilty. And on, people can have speculations that the Senate is going to exonerate him of all the charges, but we do live in a society whether the charges are against the president or against Mm -hmm. civilians, that people are, the presumption of innocence is the one that's invoked, that you're innocent until proven guilty. And so I think that the process has to be um, gone through and that the American people have to see, in some sense, uh, what these charges are. That's the first point. I think the second point is a distinction has to be made between... um, offenses or between offenses and crimes and what constitutes an offense and what constitutes a crime and this, and whether something that constitutes an offense is punishable by censure or removal from office mm-hmm. these are all these are all nitty-gritty distinctions that have to be made in a constitutional republic or a democracy um, mm-hmm. such as ours. And these are things that will play themselves out in the next couple of weeks that I think people have to have to be sure about because not everything that is even crime-worthy might constitute removal of office yeah. um, from the president, of, by the president of the United States. What do you think, brother? So, it, yeah, it completely agree with what Jason said. From the standpoint, there are some key distinctions that have to be made and, and that the impeachment will bring out. Yeah. However, m- my question and challenge is uh, no one can clarify those now. Are, are they going to come out during the impeachment? We hope so. But when you start debating if you're going to allow witnesses or not, or if you're going to have witnesses um, or allow certain testimony, uh, I'm, I'm always skeptical. Right. And I was telling you guys before the show, uh, I, I think it's laughable at this point. I mean, we, we introduce it as this this TV show and yeah. that's that's the way we're treating it. Yeah. So I think some of the teachable moments are lost because we're taking it more as entertainment. Well, you know, the thing that I'm seeing, it, it, it it's to me, this whole thing is just surreal. 
like from the second that Trump got elected, mm-hmm. everyone stopped listening. You know, um, there was a huge group of people that when he got elected, he, they started, he's not my president, he's not this, you know, he's this, he's that, right? And there were a whole lot of other people that, um, because of what he represents, they're going to stand by him no matter what. So there's, there's an absence of discourse. And, and the thing about the impeachment, which I don't think is happening, is a real exchange of information. I think it's all posturing, you know. And it becomes this popularity contest and not really this quest for truth. Well, so you said something there that I've, I've long believed. It, it hasn't been about truth in decades. It hadn't been about yeah. discord in, in decades. It hadn't been about discussion or an exchange of ideas in decades. Yeah. It's been my side versus your side. The only way my side can gain is if your side loses. Yeah. My side can only be right if your side is wrong, yeah. period. So, and, and that's – I think that's why we come together here and that's why this is here is actually have these conversations and see and, and try to open up minds and ideas and thoughts, you know. But it's uh, – for me, it's kind of a, a bit of a tragedy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with it. I, I, uh, I my concern is that nobody nobody's going to let go of their position long enough to look at the other side mm-hmm. on either side, you know? Because you said about the presumption of in- innocence. There's a group of people that there's never been a presumption of in- innocence for them, you know. And you said about listening and bringing in, you know bringing the truth. And there's another, but they're just not even interested. So we've got this huge gap. You know, absolutely. And that and 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 it's not it's not coming closer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and I'm concerned on the impact it's going to have on all of us. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it it's passe now, but there's people that have ended friendships because of their beliefs one way or the other, mm-hmm. you know, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, part of it is the nature of the beast, though. I mean, our, our political actors are not brokers of truth. Our political actors are servants of their constituents. And these constituents do not are not necessarily, which are the average American citizen, mm-hmm. are not necessarily interested in truth. They're interested in maintaining power. Really, there it is. Okay. Yeah, right. And and, and I love, <laughs> I, I'm just so taken by your your word choice. Political actors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's absolutely what they are. Yeah. So, this is really interesting because we got a guest coming on a little bit, uh, Peter Scott. Peter Scott, his whole thing is about de- dealing with fear mm-hmm. and and how we interact with fear and how fear limits us. And what you're saying, Jason, is really powerful because, you know, to, to not be interested in the truth is, is to me like one of the most frightening statements in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Because how do you, to, to not actually operate with what's so is, Mm -hmm. is going to require some kind of performance or some kind of inauthentic structure or some kind of skirting around the issue and and it's going to keep us from actually being to, coming together. Mm-hmm. Have, have you, know? you experienced the American political system? <laughs> not that's too much. That, that's that system. I mean, not, that's not the too thing much. that you describe. Not too much, actually. You know, I have. I mean, I've observed it, but I haven't experienced it. You know, I mean, I vote, but you know, God, until really recently, I don't think I've ever voted for a winner. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what does that make you, Mike? <laughs> I don't know. An idiot. You know, hey Mike, who are you voting for this year? Let me vote for the opposite. Exactly. Well, listen, even at the last the last presidential election, I was voting for Gary Johnson. You know, I had a Gary Johnson sign in my front yard. You know, so 
you know, I, listen, man, I should run an orphanage, you know, because I, I, you know, I'm always for the downtrodden and the underdog and, and all of that. So, so yeah. So, yeah, we're, when Peter gets on, we'll, we'll start talking about fear and, and what's possible. And I, but first, I want to, when we check in with him, he's, he's out at Torrey Pines at the golf course this weekend, you know. Oh, that's rough. I know. Well, he lives about three miles from there. So. Oh, that you're making it even. I, my heart bleeds. He lives. Him. Have you guys ever been to Solano Beach? Mm-mm. You've never been to Solano Beach no. in, in San Diego. It's, it's like one of the most beautiful places in the world. You surf there, and uh, and so when I'm in, so you know, I was bad mouthing California. Yes, that, that's BS. I actually like going out there. And I like to surf and do stuff. Like that. <laughs> I got to get a really big board. Quit laughing at me, dude. <laughs> My image of you just completely shattered right now. What? Hanging ten? No, no, no. I don't hang doggy and gadget. I don't hang ten. I don't do anything. I get on top of the board. I stand it right into shore. Go back out. Repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, that's all it is. It's, there's no, there's no cleverness on that. Man. And I got to get a board about as big as his room because I'm girthy. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, also, this is White Sox weekend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jason's like, yeah, okay, that's beautiful. So. Yeah. Eh, eh, that's it. <laughs> the White Sox are going to be awesome this year. Do you think so? I think so. I think they're going to be good. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. What else do you want to put in this before we end this first half? Anything? Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. What is she doing? What happened there? I'm, I'm, I don't know. She's, um, you know, she's ragging nobody, Bernie. Uh, she's well, she's ragging him. Like you know, no, nobody likes him. Nobody likes to oh. work with him. Uh, I think she's having a moment. Yeah, she she can't get out of the limelight. She still hasn't she hasn't gotten over not winning. She, she hasn't gotten over not winning. She yeah. was guaranteed to win. Yeah. And Bernie's yeah. a crabby old guy. Do you like him? Does anybody it, like him? It's all about relevance, but again, we're back to that popularity contest yes. and our yeah. political actors. Yes. Well, nobody likes Bernie. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Lots of people like Bernie. I may not be one of them, but lots of people yeah. like Bernie. My students, the Generation Z, are crazy for him. Yeah. They, they really? want to vote him into so they want to vote this country into socialism and they want Bernie. I'm telling you, Generation Z love Bernie Sanders. That's really interesting. I, I what is the appeal the appeal of socialism? Now we're gonna have to go. We gotta take a break. Everything's free. Everything's free. I was gonna say it's easy. It's easy. Yeah. You don't easy. have to think. You don't have to make those choices. Well, we'll be back in two minutes. We're gonna have our guest uh, Peter Scott back on, and then we'll talk about fear, fearlessness, and uh, how to be successful. Dallas Cowboy Hall of Fame coach Tom Landry once said, "A coach is someone who has you see what you don't want to see, and has you hear what you don't want to hear, so you can always be the person you knew yourself to be." Hello. I'm Mike Sherrick, founder and president of the Mike Sherrick Group and Mike Sherrick Coaching. We are an executive coaching and leadership development organization with offices in Berwyn, Illinois and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Successful organizations begin with the self-awareness and authenticity of its leaders. And in today's world, we are all leaders. If you or your organization has a big vision or you know there's another level you can go to, please give us a call at 630-643-6336. If you're one of the first three people who call us today, you will be eligible for a free IMX leadership assessment and debrief, a $550 value free to you and your organization. So give us a call at 630-643-6336 and take it on. We're back after our break. And now we got our guest, my buddy, my friend, Peter Scott IV. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Good. How's Tori Pines the other day? 
Oh my gosh, it was unbelievable. I could reach out and touch Tiger, which was awesome. So I got to see Tiger, Rory, and all the rest of the extraordinary golfers out there. That's awesome. You've got a little bit of an unnatural relationship with Tiger, man. You've, you've talked about him <laughs> a little bit, so I'm a little concerned. Some name dropping uh, going on. Funny. Yeah. So Peter, I want to introduce you to uh, Will Campbell yep. and to Jason Hill. So, Will and Jason, good to meet you guys. Yeah, hey, thank you. Too. Yeah, so same here, Peter. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for yeah, being forgive on. Forgive my voice, guys. I've got the man flu right now. I'm sure all of you. Have oh, had that dude. Dude, I'm, I just want to acknowledge you for being able to sit upright, take in nourishment, and to be, you know, to power through because we know what that requires, you know. Yeah. In, in yeah. fact, we're going to take a collection later on in the show uh, to yeah. support your cause there, Peter. Thank you. I would appreciate that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, I know guys who've walked into the hospital with heart attacks but are taken out for four days with a man cold, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. I, I'm one of them. I had a heart attack in September, went to teach. I know. And uh, went to D.C. Uh, to give a talk and yeah. then uh, just had the flu like you, Peter, and um, was taken out for uh, still still recuperating <laughs> from it after two weeks. Yeah. yeah. So, That's and, crazy. So I don't say – there needs to be a study done on the impact of a cold on the male human because it's significantly different than on the other parts of the species, Right. It's like the world ends, you know, yeah. it, there's, nothing else is as important. And yeah, uh, yeah it's funny. It, Fortunately, my wife is taking care of me. So that's, oh, that's, well, see, <laughs> there it is. You're a newlywed. You're going to get this one time from now on. This is my first, yeah. Man this is the only time on out, I'm on my own. Yeah. After that, it's never going to happen. They're, they're going to you know, get up, go take care of something. It's not that, totally, early, yeah. you know, and wait till there's kids. And then it's like, pff, they cut you in zero slack. Right. Oh, then they leave you alone in the house with the kids and you've got this man cold or flu. Yeah. Uh, it, oh. It's horrible. And the kids are needy and they like, what do you mean you need your diaper changed? Don't you do that yourself? Yeah, take care of that yourself, man. You know, so. <laughs> walk it off, kid. Rub some dirt on it. <laughs> Rub some dirt on it. Like it. They're already. Never mind. <laughs> so. So, Peter, we wanted to, you know, we were talking before. One of the things that I, you know, you are the fearless coach, right? Yeah. And I, I, I'm curious, how did you, what got you into that, to really talking about and having people face their fears and, and, and being the fearless coach? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I appreciate the, that question, Mike. I, you know, we often teach what we need to learn. And go. I think the reason why I chose fearless or fear as a, as a topic to dive into was because my entire life was consumed by it. Yeah. Um, absolutely terrified of fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of, you know, not being enough. And uh, it stemmed from, from early childhood stuff. I mean, I, you know, grew up with two loving parents, but they had their own challenges battled with uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget, you know, it started with, and again, you don't know this at that age, but you can look back and connect the dots. Of course um, it started when I was like 11. I remember sitting in a courtroom with uh, an attorney on my left, uh, my grandparents on my right, and my mother directly across from me. And at 11 years old, I had to look into my mom's eyes and tell her that I no longer felt safe living with her because of her alcoholism. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. When, when something like that happens, um, uh, an event so so significant and so intense it can often make this unconscious decision in our mind. And I decided that in that moment that, you know, telling my mom the truth of how I felt meant losing her love. Yeah. And I know that wasn't true looking back now. And I know you guys know that's not true, but as an 11 year old, that's what I thought was true. So 
it, you know, it created this belief that telling the truth equals lo losing love. So I became this inauthentic uh, version of myself to just seek love and approval from outside of me. Um, and I ran that pattern for many years uh, up until the point where I was working in Chicago, actually, not too far from where you guys are. And um, I, I was working in investment banking. I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. And I got a phone call. I was 25 years old uh, that my father had just been rushed to the hospital. And I remember walking into, into hospice and asking him why he did this to himself. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, because I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, and you know, my dad was afraid of not living up to his parents' expectations. And, uh, I was living that same life. And so that was the moment, Mike, to, to answer your question in a very long no, way, no, man, that's um, awesome. that I decided that, you know what, I lived my whole life up until that point run by my own fears and insecurities and doubts. And I had to do something different. Mm. And that was the start of me kind of pursuing personal growth and, and addressing these issues that kind of were patterns that were, you know, in my blind spot until that point. Yeah. Well, are you, let me ask you a question. Are you a fear annihilator or are you someone who um, thinks that fear has a sort of an evolutionary adaptiveness built into it? Because isn't, isn't fear something that allows us to pit or to discover our strengths and our weaknesses against the world? I mean, I'm thinking... Uh, one of the courses I'm teaching this semester is a, a course in evolutionary psychology here at DePaul, yes. and and we're looking at this 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 theory that our skulls are 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 encased in a stone age, uh, a, a stone age uh, psychological framework, yeah. and um, there are two things I want to I want to want to ask you. One is that from a standpoint of evolutionary psychology, is that fear is not always a bad thing because fear is something that allows us to test our strengths and weaknesses against the world if we were just to sort of like run straight out into the universe without any sense of caution or prudence or 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 or, or, or sense of or what our limitations are we would actually die so uh, 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 some modicum of fear is what allows us to actually build our strengths in the world um, so what's your what's how do you approach the issue of a healthy semblance of fear versus just being? I totally agree with you. Yeah. So it, you know, it's it's challenging with uh, you know, language is 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 a is a special thing because fearless means one thing to me and it may mean something different to the person listening, right? So mm -hmm. we have our own rules. When I say fearless, I don't mean living without fear. Mm -hmm. I mean having the courage and the confidence to do that thing that scares you. And I totally agree. I think that fear can be a really great thing. But the problem, especially when you look evolutionarily at this, is that that fear that we once had uh, when we were running from tigers, right, yeah. that kept us alive. And I think about fear that there's two types of fear. There's rational fears that keep us alive, and there's irrational fears that keep us from living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that our mind can't recognize the difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether we're being chased by a tiger or we're walking in to give a presentation, the the the, the physiological you know experience in our body is exactly the same, and I, I think that's because you know fear was initially created when you're in the presence of imminent danger, and when you feel that fear, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's why the 
fight response is a good thing. But the problem is the most fear to most of us are not in imminent danger today. Um, there are plenty of people that are on the planet, but most of us listening to this today are not. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that, that agitation, that projection of a painful future is what's holding us back. And that's the fear that I want people to run towards and tackle because the only thing that to really overcome that fear is to do that very thing that, that terrifies you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Peter, it sounds like to me, primary, a primary part of your practice or what you do is, is that distinguishing between that irrational fear and that life threatening, I'm about to be eaten by a saber tooth, woolly bear mammoth. Um, is, is, is that fair to say? It's that primarily what you do? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, a lot of fears are, are figments of our imagination, right? And some people will say, oh, just tr- try to pretend like that fear is not there. But I think when you dive into the fear and you go really deep and there's a process that we have for that, that I actually outlined in my book, which I'd, I'd be happy to share at some point today. Um, it's a process where you actually envision the worst case scenario mm-hmm. and you realize it's actually not that bad. Because by doing that, it releases the emotional charge. So yeah, that's exactly right. Tell us the title of your book. Uh, title of the book is called The Fearless Mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Peter, I, I've run into folks that, um, you know, one of the things you're talking about, the performing and the wanting to get liked and all this stuff and accepted and mm-hmm. everything, creates this, uh, this operational state of complete and utter inauthenticity, right? Yes, yes. So... Um, so they're out there performing, they're acting, they're doing whatever they need to do to look good, to be, you know, to remain safe. And I, I've run into some people who are really facile at creating this illusion that they're operating courageously, but they're really playing it safe. You know, I think you run into it inside of academics all the time, you know, um, and you would run into it in corporate America. Will. Oh my gosh. You a- know? Absolutely. And so, so. I, I find it a challenge to operate that with those folks. So yes. what kind of uh, coaching, counseling uh, advice do you have for that? Or, and, and it's got to be miserable being them. You know? <laughs> yeah, because then you're literally living a lie, right? And well, that's I, I, a, yeah, yeah. You're, you're not living at the highest level possible for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I was blessed. I started my career in kind of coaching and personal development actually in Chicago yeah. with a company called Lifebook. And uh, extraordinary company. And we had the who's who, I won't name names, but the who's who of personal development, like some of the biggest names out there come through. And I was shocked to see, Mike, how different they were backstage than on stage. Yeah. And I noticed many of them weren't living the message that they were teaching. Well, it's it's really interesting. I'm, I'm working with a guy, super successful, and he got really comfortable where he was at and he stuck. And we had a call last night. And he, he called me up this morning and goes, I didn't know. Like, he didn't even see. And this, is, this guy's a baller. I mean, this guy is a player, right? And he just didn't see how stuck he got. So we're going to take a break when we, when we come back. But what I want to talk about, Peter, and with, with the, my other two guys here is how do, we, how do we continually challenge ourselves so we're not stuck, you know? Because I think yeah. it's really easy to get comfortable, you know? It, yeah. It's really easy to... Uh, to, to get in that really comfort area where everything's working. So you guys good with that? Is that a good thing to take this one? Yeah. Sounds like a plan to me. Yeah. Love it. So, and then we're going to, we got about 30 seconds to burn. Tell us a little bit about Solano beach state. Cause it's snowing right now here. So. You know, <laughs> well, 
We have a terrible thing called marine layer. So oh, it's okay. be- oh my God, you guys are struggling in San Diego. We need to take up a collection. Stuff, Another collection. Then, yeah, Two collections this We show. need a collection because you guys are dealing with, it's probably like 50 degrees, 60 degrees and yeah. foggy. Oh my God, exactly. I'm sorry, brother. It's snowing here in Chicago and they're struggling. The struggle is real in San Diego today, guys. It's what, about 60 degrees? Yeah, it's about 58 in the 50, marine layer, but, but don't worry, the sun will burn up the clouds this afternoon. a marine afternoon. layer, so they're struggling on San Diego. Thoughts and prayers to San Diego people. Right, right. I love how he says marine layer like it's some like medical diagnosis. <laughs> There's a marine layer, we'll, we'll have that removed by the specialist oh my uh, God. the 2 o'clock procedure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we're talking about people being comfortable with living in fear, right, and creating strategies and structures for that. And how, uh, um, for lack of a better word, challenging it could be to operate in that way. And, and almost every organization or corporation has some version of that. You know? With that, if I can jump yeah. in, Mike. Uh, Peter, for you, a, a question. How do you make making real progress more than a platitude? Uh, because in, in corporate America and in, in America in general, we've, we've got all kinds of platitudes. Nothing great ever came from safety's you know, comfort zones and you have to be unsafe and there's great stuff out there for you. How do you make that real? How do you get beyond the the words and the platitudes? Yeah, great question. I, um, I'm a big believer, you know, me being an ex-investment banker, I'm very analytical, right? So uh, I am very structured in my life with habits. And I think that progress is measured by the results that you get. So if I look at our life, right, our life is a uh, result of our daily actions and decisions. That's really it, daily actions and choices. One of the things that I do with our clients is we track and measure their progress. And that may be easy in a business context because you can track things like sales or leads or, you know, um, things like that. But when it comes to daily habits and whether it's uh, uncomfortable conversations, or working out or doing something around meditation, like those things, we gamify that process and assign points to it. And that may sound totally nerdy, but I find that high achievers like to win, right? And so we like to measure our success compared to our past. And that's one of the things that we look at to really produce results instead of just kind of using these cliches or, or platitudes. Mm. Um, there's something I want, I want to touch on. I mean, the the psychologist Abraham Maslow uh, talked about this phenomenon that he called the he called the Jonas syndrome, and uh, it, it ties into some of what we were talking about before, where people are really really comfortable with being ensconced in their own mediocrity. People are really really afraid of experiencing what he called the full intensity of life, of their greatness, of their own exceptionalism, and. It's a fear of their greatness. It's a fear of their exceptional, of experiencing the full intent, their full vitality, and the, the grandeur of their of their of their being is what he calls yeah. it. To sound to sound really philosophical here, but we, but Maslow thought that we we had a transcendental uh, uh, feature to our to our existence where we could transcend the mode of our own existence that we find ourselves in, and we could we could actually accomplish greatness in our lives. And most people actually were and still are fearful of that aspect of yeah. their of their identity and prefer mediocrity. And, uh, you know, one sees this quite often where people have a lot of bravado talk but have very little chutzpah. That is because the steps that are required to be exceptional involve 
failure and, yes. and involve risk and involve vulnerability. And uh, I wonder if, if you have encountered that in your experience as a, as, a, as a coach, people being afraid of experiencing their own exceptionalism and their own greatness. Oh my gosh, absolutely. It's a very, very common, you know, I think that that's more common than any other um, <clears throat> challenge out there. I think that, I think there's two things that have a huge influence on that. Um, one is environment mm -hmm. and the second are relationships. You know, one of the, I don't know who said this, I think it was Bruce Lipton um, who wrote the biology of belief. He said, when you're in the environment, you become the environment. Mm. And so when you're wow. in the conversation, yeah, when you're in the environment, you become the environment. So if you're, uh, if you're in an environment of mediocrity, then it's comfortable and it's actually chastised or judged to step out of that. Mm-hmm. And I found that that's what was happening as I was growing my coaching business from family members who I sought love and approval from. You know, I remember one of the things that I did, gosh, six, seven years ago was I leveraged social media as a tool to tell my story. And I must have looked insane because I didn't know what my message was at the time. And I left corporate America, left, you know, investment banking. And I did this thing that, that certain members of my family weren't approving of. And so I got a lot of judgment, a lot of ridicule from them. Um, and I ended up creating some separation, like having conversations that were super uncomfortable and then saying, hey, I love and appreciate you. And I'm blocking you so that uh, blocking you from social media. This may sound elementary, but it actually was a big impact because I didn't want that that voice in my head of saying, you know, creating self-doubt. So environments one and, and two is relationships, who we surround ourselves with. Yeah. Um, there are tons of people that don't even know. And I think here's the problem to, to, to both of your questions. They don't even know they're living a life of mediocrity because that's all they see around them. Nice. Right. And so for me, I, um, I'm super blessed to have a friend named Sean Stevenson. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but my best friend for about 10 years, uh, Sean was three feet tall and in a wheelchair. Some of you may have seen him. He, um, He's one of the best speakers on the planet. He shared the stage with the Dalai Lama and Richard Branson and Bill Clinton and all these extraordinary speakers out there. And he had this thing called osteogenesis imperfecta. And brittle what bone that is, it's, called, it's a mouthful, right? Um, brittle bone disorder. Mm -hmm. he, his body was so fragile, he would sneeze and fracture a rib. Wow. He had over 200 fractures by the time he was 18 years old. And this man lived an extraordinary life. Talk about pain yeah. and willingness to step outside of your comfort zone. He, you know, we started to, to, to become friends when I was probably around 25 years old and having him as an influence helped me realize I've got no excuses to like live a life of me. Like, like he had every reason to give up and to quit. Mm -hmm. And I think that who you surround yourself with and who you spend time with and the conversations that you have has a tremendous impact on your willingness to step out of that mediocrity. And Mike, as a coach, you know, part of our job is to hold up a mirror yeah. for our yeah. clients to see the truth of the reality that they're living in. What? And that's really hard. That means that we have to say things that no one else in their life is willing to sell them, uh, say to them, you know, their wife, their, their husband, their, their, their family, their, like no one else is willing to speak in the way that we speak to them. And I think that's crucial as well. Well, the thing you said that just hit me like a ton of bricks was the impact of environment. So I've done a lot of work inside organizational cultures, right? And, uh, and sometimes it's, it's difficult for me to articulate what's not working. You go in, you can feel it, you know it, 
something's off and and you you know and I know that I've been hesitant to actually say what it is but I always end up blurting it out because I can't stop myself but well that's you Mike yeah I know but but that's really the thing is is you got to go in and these environments actually you know these organizations are wondering why you know they can't break out but because they're all swimming in the same primordial soup <laughs> you know and yes. and taking in the like they want to get out but they're so stuck in it you know and so it becomes difficult to change the organization unless people actually get that's what needs to be done. Like the culture needs to be changed. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. There's a, just so much goodness floating around this conversation. Yeah. Uh, directly with what you're talking about, Micah, something comes to me. Um, to lead someone else out of darkness, you have to leave the light. Right. So you, you can't be all nice and comfortable where you are and help someone. That's the environment thing mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Right. You have to be in it to really impact it. Mm-hmm. Um and with what you're saying, Mike, and Jason said it, and, and Peter, you touched on it. Um, how do you keep people motivated, Peter? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of The Alchemist right now, a, a book by Paolo Coelho. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a line in there that says, nothing scarier than actually having a dream come true, right? Yeah. Which means there's a new fear. You conquer one, you get that dream, there's another fear. So in theory, there's an infinite number of fears. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that, Peter? Yeah. One of the, one of the biggest things is to find uh, what's really driving them to achieve something, right? If you can uncover somebody's burning desire, as Napoleon Hill would say, and think and grow rich, um, that's going to drive somebody to run through walls, to break through barriers, to overcome obstacles. Um, The second thing is leverage. You know, we're often, the way we're wired as humans is we are more motivated to avoid pain than we are to experience pleasure. And dangling the carrot yeah, let me say that again. If that's a writer downer, if somebody's listening to this, as long as you're not driving, write this one down. <laughs> we are more motivated to avoid pain than we are to experience pleasure. I'm writing it down. Yeah. So just like just dangling the carrot is not enough. Just, you know, motivating somebody um, by through platitudes is not enough. You've yeah. got to find the leverage. What's the painful consequence of them not taking action? And I think that's one of the greatest ways to overcome fear because fear stops people from taking action, right? Fear of you know, ridicule, ridicule, fear of judgment, fear of failure, whatever it is. So one of the things that we do is we help get our clients super clear on the cost of inaction. And if we take that cost and we, we project it out five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, imagine that thing that you tell me that you want to do. And imagine 20 years of your finite life goes by and you don't do that thing. That cost is far greater than doing that thing today and receiving any sort of judgment or ridicule. ridicule around. Yeah. You know, when, when you're talking about this, Jason, this is some of the stuff in your book is, it, you know, that's really kind of what you talk about is breaking out of the environment that more like the psychological or mental environment than mm. it is about the physical environment. And I'm seeing this, and I, I didn't think in the beginning when we were going to talk about fear, it was tied to your book, but there's there's a lot of stuff that goes in there. Yeah. From the We Shall Overcome, or We Have Overcome book. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, this is interesting, what keeps people stuck. And it might be difficult for you, because I don't see you as being stuck very often. <laughs> well, know? you know, it's it comes back to something that we've talked about, about personality types, you know, the mm-hmm. alpha male versus the, the sigma male versus the beta male. And yeah. that's maybe something that, that Peter, we can talk about with Peter. I mean, ver- the, the, the sensibilities that people have, whether these can actually be taught or whether there's certain personality traits yeah. that people have. Yeah, limitations, by, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, we're going to take a break. We'll take a break, and then and uh, and we'll come back and we'll talk about that because see if there's any, if you have different strategies for different personality types and things like that. So yeah, what kind of strategies do you have? We were talking about the alpha male strategy, which can be a handful. Uh, the beta males, the sigma males, various different types of people. Do you have different strategies for people, or you kind of go at the same way with everyone? Definitely different strategies. Yeah, yeah. because you know all of us are wired so differently. Right. Yeah. I don't think I've uh, segmented them across those labels, though. I've heard of alpha and beta. Sigma yeah. and gamma are new to me. So yeah. I was learning from that conversation. Yeah. Um, but a lot of this has to do with our unconscious programming, right? Or subconscious, as someone would say. Um, if you imagine your mind, you know, only 10% of it is kind of conscious, which is the, you know, willpower, determination, um, actions that you take, a lot of it is unconscious programming. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of the work that we, that I would do, Mike, is, is go deep into that unconscious to find those, those patterns. Mm -hmm. um, some are deep, more deeply ingrained than others, as I'm sure we all know. Um, but it's important to separate the person from their behavior. Yeah. And this is something that I learned from, uh, if you guys have ever heard of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, super powerful. It's so easy to label somebody. Peter, right. you're, and, you're, you're a Tony Robbins guy, right? You know, I am and. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I bet and. you're Tony. <laughs> the and uh, was very pronounced there, Peter. Yeah, uh, I respect what he's done. I mm -hmm. he's had a huge impact on humanity. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I've studied him for sure. Yeah, yeah. Peter, yeah. when you say you, you let, me, let me play devil's advocate here or just let yeah. me be a, a pedantic philosopher here. When you say you separate the person from their behavior and if, and if there's a, if if we're if part of how we're constituted as individuals is by our actions and our behavior, I mean, I, when I think of a person and I'm trying to gain a sense of who that person is, I I, I rarely um, gain a sense of who a person is by what he or she says, uh, or by their even by their beliefs. I usually gauge the identity of the person by their actions. So when you say you separate the person from their behavior. Can you just explain a little bit more about what is a nugget of self that is to be gauged if not by the person's actions or the person's yeah. behavior? Beautiful question. Um, what I mean by that is you always consider their actions. You always consider their behaviors, mm -hmm. but you don't label them based on it. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a therapist named Virginia Satir and she was a marriage and family therapist. And she would go in and counsel male clients. And this is a very touchy subject. I realize this who were abusive to their spouses and the creators of NLP, two guys named John Grinder and, and, um, Oh gosh, what's the other, I forget the other guy's name, but they asked her, how could you do this? This person beat their spouse. How could you ever try to help them? And she said that as a therapist, you have to separate that the person is not their behavior. Yes, those are actions that they took, but it comes from programming. It comes from painful events of their life that if you can help release the negative emotions, the baggage, the limiting beliefs from that, that person can have a new reality. And so that's what I mean by that is, is do not ignore their behavior. Absolutely consider it, but know that you can still separate themselves from that. Because the moment we put somebody in a box. Yeah. They're going to rebel against the box. Out of it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and also, too, if someone is just their behavior, then there is no renewal. 
there is no reinvention. There's no ability to like transform for lack of a better word. And yeah. so to me, that's it. Where I've, where I've seen it in, in, in corporate America, my, I've got an HR background and learning and development. So we transform it to performance ratings, right? The fa- everyone's favorite time of year. When, when, you, right. when you're told you're a three point whatever, the person's not a three point whatever. They're not a, the person's not a one point whatever. Their performance mm-hmm. was rated that way. So you, again, you're separating the performance and is that, from the person. Is that not a get out of jail free card though too? You know, I'm, I'm seeing both sides of this. I'm, I'm just, I, this is really a, um, an interesting question in that if you, if you separate them, there can also be the absence of responsibility about people's actions, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. But if you collapse them together, there's no chance for renewal. So, and no chance for development and being a, you know, and, and someone's going to be a C student, Jason, they're always going to be a C student kind of thing. Right. So how, how do we, how do we get through, you know, I, I don't know. I guess that's a, the, the, well, I, I think challenge of life. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the, the lesser of two evils, right? Neither one's an ideal situation, yeah. but at least if you separate them, there's the opportunity, there's the possibility yeah. for renewal. Whereas if you collapse them, there's no chance, right? right. You've already written them off. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the old L and D joke and I don't know how old it is or if it's actually a joke. Uh, what if we give people the training and they leave? Well, what if we don't and they stay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's actually funny. Yes. Thank you for laughing. I was, I was afraid that one's going to no, fall flat, folks. It, it requires actually thinking about it. <laughs> it's actually really funny. Yeah. What if we don't train them and they stay? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I've had that experience. Yeah. I, I think you got to have like 30 people work for you at one time for you to actually get the joke, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Be in that manufacturing environment. That yeah, you, yeah. And there's that one or, guy, or, Phil, that just, oh, that's Phil. Or, okay. or a big sales team. Yeah. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, I wanted to ask Peter a question. Sure. Because, um, Mike, you and I talked about this recently mm-hmm. about um, one of the big obstacles to overcoming failure in um, – and it's a hard thing for Americans to swallow, um, is teaching people that they have a democratic right to fail. Mm, yes. And when you accept that you have a democratic right to fail, especially in, a, I think, as a patriotic, great country like America, is that you have the opportunity for, you just mentioned the word, word self-renewal, mm-hmm. that you can pick yourself back up and you can, and you can renew yourself. And my, I, I guess, Peter, I want, wanted to ask you is... Um, because I've been, I'm an immigrant and I've been here 35 years. And when I first came here, especially as a college student, I mean, we all thought, and I, and I sensed uh, among people that, you know, you could fail in this country and you could pick yourself back up and, and, and renew yourself. Now, as a college professor in the classroom dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds, these kids are scared. They think they have a one shot at, at success. And if they fail, their lives are ruined. Yes. And when I say to them, you have a democratic right to fail, they're like, no, I don't. I, I can't fail. If I fa-. And I said, you're, you're, you're 19 years old. You have the, your whole life. Is this a phenomenon that you're finding in the world today where people are afraid of failing because they sense that they don't have the chance for self-renewal at all? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a evolutionary fear of not having safety. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if, mm-hmm. imagine like if you fail, then you get excommunicated from the tribe, yep. you're pushed out of the cave. You're now in the Chicago winters. Right. right. And there's no shelter. That's terrifying. 
And I think that our education system, uh, and this is a big generalization, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, in my experience, you know, the teachers that I learned from and, and the education that I gained both undergrad, both, you know, both in high school and undergraduate and beyond was don't fail, right? Mm -hmm. We're rewarded to, to, to not fail. Mm -hmm. uh, I've conditioned myself and I've seen this in coaching to believe that there's no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. Right. And, you know, we talked about Tory Pines and the golf tournament happening. And one of the best golfers in the world right now, a guy named Rory McIlroy was interviewed yesterday and he goes, listen, if I hadn't failed at all those tournaments where I came this close to winning, I wouldn't have the conviction, the determination, the grit, the knowledge now to actually take those lessons and apply them to win the next tournament. And so it takes a conversation like this. And I think it takes not just one time, but repetition. Like, you know, I read a lot of the self-help books out there and the leadership books out there. And you hear some of the most successful people in the world say that. So, Peter, we got to go. Tell us the name of your book again and where people can buy it. Yeah. The Fearless Mindset is the name of the book. I'm sorry. We ran out of time, man. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you. Will, Thank anything you, you want to say before we go? Hey, Peter, thanks for uh, being on. Everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, it was good here being with you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Buy his book. Yeah, buy his book. Buy two copies. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Have a good one. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.